Lots of different terrain covered on today's podcast. Appreciate you, as always, for checking it out. We'll start with some of Thursday's show on the Redskins and Bruce Allen and the latest in the Scott McLuhan dealings. And just, it's a mess. And I talked about it. And I was sinister and angry. And then a caller made me laugh. And, and he said he was going to shut up. And I wish he hadn't because he was good. Uh, so that's that's on the podcast. And then uh, Sunday's show is mostly spent on basketball, talking uh, to Justine Ward of SNY about the UConn women and the end of their run. Jamie and Christian was just so good. Uh, the head coach of Mount St. Mary's, he's a candidate at Georgetown and will be a candidate at other places. You'll see why. He's real sharp. Grant Paulson on the Nats and the Caps as well. Unfortunately, what is not on this podcast is real things real people said in real microphones, despite it being my favorite segment of the week, because Bill Walton's halftime analysis uh, of the first semifinal, the Final Four game, the first Final Four game, was grab your belly and giggle like a schoolchild funny, but I don't have the rights to put it in a podcast. So I'm, I'm sorry. Very, very sorry. Here, here's the rest of the best of the week. Michael Robinson played for the Seattle Seahawks, a fullback. I believe he helped them win a Super Bowl. He was uh, really good at his job. He was picked to do that job by Scott McLuhan. Sometime after both of them were done in Seattle, Scott McLuhan came here. You know how that went. Michael Robinson was on a Richmond radio station today. In fact, uh, the radio station was 910 uh, Fox Sports down there, the Wes McElroy Show. He deserves credit for his interviews, so I will give it to him. Michael Robinson, we will play the full audio coming up at 7 o'clock, but the crux of what he said that made everybody's eyebrows raise is this. Quote, he knew the players loved him, he being Scott McLuhan. He knew the players loved him, and he started feeling the hate from Bruce Allen right around, well, he's been feeling it. But when they didn't let him speak to the reporters at the Senior Bowl, he said to him that was his last straw, and he knew that he was on his way out. He said it was after a draft meeting, after the combine. Bruce called him up to his office and just and was just like, nobody likes you in this building. Nobody wants you here. And Scott was like, well, I guess I'm out of here. Robinson also said McLuhan told him that he doesn't have an issue drinking right now. And quote, I haven't touched a drink in a while. Upon reading or hearing those comments played earlier today here on Chad Dukes versus the world, uh, read all day uh, after they were just, they were transcribed by Michael Phillips of the Richmond Times Dispatch. The common refrain that I heard was, "Oh man, see, Bruce is the worst." Scott, this wasn't about Scott's drinking. This was about Bruce Allen not being able to handle someone getting the credit. Here's what I would tell you: it's worse than that. Not not going to come back at you with, oh, this isn't so black and white. It's, it's, there's, this is just one person. This is McLuhan's side. No, 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 no. This is worse than that. This, to me, more confirms the most sinister version of events than trying to dispute them. Let me explain. And... Let me also put this disclaimer on everything I'm going to say between now and 745. I'm not reporting anything. So nobody go run to the Twitter and say Hoffman reported this on the fan. I'm not reporting jack squat. I am collecting scuttlebutt 
piecing it together like like a, a detective and giving you my best guesstimate. It's an educated guesstimate. But I'm not telling you which parts are educated and which parts are not so you don't get to guess. Okay? This is, this is just piecing together a lot of stuff. And coming to this conclusion, which if I had to bet on it, I'd be comfortable betting on, but I'm not, I, I, I'm not reporting it as fact because I don't know that to be true. Disclaimers out of the way. Am I good? Am I allowed to talk now? All right. Here's what I would tell you. I don't think Scott McLuhan ever stopped drinking. We know he didn't stop drinking immediately after he got fired for drinking because he did a piece with Seth Wickersham of ESPN, the magazine, uh, that said as much. He was drinking with Seth Wickersham. Uh, so he didn't ever have a relapse because he never stopped drinking. And so that when McLuhan tells Robinson that he doesn't have an issue drinking right now and I haven't touched a drink in a while, that seems to me that that would be relative to Scott McLuhan's definition of drinking, which involves actually drink, you know, which is like, oh, if I'm only drinking a little or drinking some and I'm not toast every night, then I'm, quote unquote, not drinking. Okay, alcoholism, as I've discussed, I'm not going to get back into this diatribe now, but alcoholism is a beast. It is a behemoth of a real actual disease. It is an addiction. Addiction is serious. We should treat it as such. Part of that addiction is denial. I... I've heard enough that Scott McLuhan was drinking to not, to not hear him tell someone else, go, I wasn't drinking, and believe him. That's part of being an alcoholic. Scott McLuhan has said he's not an alcoholic, but he's been fired twice for alcoholism. Like, I'm not trying to, to demonize the man for that. It's just the facts are the facts, and, and those seem to be what the facts are. So that's, that's thing one. I don't think I'm the only person who knows that. Quite obviously. I think the person, another person who knew that was Bruce Allen. And this is where it becomes the most sinister version of events and Bruce Allen being the, the worst. Bruce Allen knew that he could fire Scott McLuhan at any time and blame alcohol because Scott McLuhan never stopped drinking. I believe that the way Michael Robinson categorizes events of... There was essentially a pissing contest. There was a, a power struggle. There was a credit struggle. And that Bruce Allen felt threatened by Scott McLuhan. And even though Bruce, the, his role uh, was more to be politician than it was football person. Um, and, and he was going to be kind of indispensable for this franchise because they were negotiating and are negotiating the stadium deal. And a lot of people think that because of the work Bruce has done on that, which in full transparency and honesty is not something I'm privy to or familiar with and exactly how that is going. Um, but because of how invested Bruce is in the stadium project and how complicated that is going to be between D.C., Maryland and Virginia, that he has kind of got job security as long as that is still being worked out. But that is apparently not enough. He was tired of Scott McLuhan getting credit for turning the franchise around he thought he could do the job, uh, and and that was kind of the end of that. And he didn't like some of the things that for Albert Breer reported happened, uh, the meeting with Brashad Breland, uh, how the Sua Cravens thing has panned out, um, obviously the Josh Doxson disappointment uh, with him basically not playing last year, that all that stuff added up, and Bruce Allen was like, 
Ah, you're gone. But to do that and use McLuhan's drinking, because again, it's somehow magically, even though Bruce didn't read the report till a month or a week later, it somehow magically got into the Washington Post. And by the way, our own Brian McNally is reporting that McLuhan was fired for cause for alcoholism. I would never, ever put personal business in the streets except for there's an anonymous quote in the Washington Post that says he was fired for cause. Allen used McLuhan's drinking to fire him and knew that he had him whenever he wanted. And Seth Wickersham, same guy, ESPN, the magazine, who wrote the article, the feature on McLuhan that we all read a couple months prior to him being hired here that we've quoted a zillion times since was told at some point during last season, watch what's going to happen. They're going to fire him and and say he's been drinking. And Wickersham laughed and said, yeah, right. That's the most sinister thing I've ever heard. It's the most cynical thing I've ever heard. And then it happened. Connect the dots. It's sick. It's sick. Does it necessarily prohibit this franchise from being productive or or functional or whatever moving forward not inherently no so i so i guess that's the good news rainbows and sunshine but to me when you piece all of this stuff together what it points to more than any like the big red pulsing arrow of led lights is Bruce Allen's complete and utter shamelessness. Because to say, to call McLuhan, which is what allegedly happened for Michael Robinson, uh, is what what McLuhan allegedly told Michael Robinson, what Michael Robinson told 910 Fox Sports in Richmond and the West McElroy show. To say, nobody likes you in this building, nobody wants you here, is a bologna sandwich. I wish I could just say bowl and, and for emphasis, but it's 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 incorrect. Because I've talked to players and they were not psyched about McLuhan's firing. Quote from one player who I texted in the immediate aftermath, I got nothing but love for that man. So he's wrong and it's shamelessly wrong because he, there's no way he can know he's wrong. Or he can't know he's wrong. And even, I question this too. In an interview with the Monday Morning Quarterback, Allen was asked by Albert Breer, are you disappointed with how things ended with McLuhan? And he starts the answer with, I'm the one who brought Scott to the Redskins. When Chuck Sapienza joined me and Russell about two weeks ago, and Chuck Chuck knows where all the bodies are buried at Redskins Park. He's executive producer of Redskins Radios for years. He knows a lot of people. And so, again, knows where all of the bodies are buried. He said that it wasn't Allen who brought in McLuhan. It was Snyder. Maybe it was, hey, you're bringing in someone, and Allen knew that he could screw over McLuhan eventually. Maybe that's what he means. But it was not 
Bruce's call to like bring in a general manager because that was his job. McLuhan was brought in as a reaction to the winning off the field debacle. So to start off that answer with, I'm the one who brought in Scott to the Redskins and shamelessly lie is a joke. But that's what, I mean, I just, Bruce Allen's one of the most frustrating people I've ever covered. Seriously. I'm trying to think of, like, who the other candidates are. I mean, I covered the Cowboys for two and a half years. Jerry Jones is more circus act than he was. Like, you just don't take anything he says really that seriously. Like, Bruce wants you to take him seriously. And you can't. Because he just steps in it all the freaking time. So that's my thoughts on the news of the day. It's not black and white. It doesn't mean that McLuhan, don't just look at these quotes and go, yeah, McLuhan wasn't drinking. The, the Redskins screwed him over. No, he probably was. But the Redskins still probably screwed him over. Greg Hoffman with you tonight. The mystery has been solved. The NIT final is coming up at 745. That game is Georgia Tech TCU. So hoops coming up. So I got you until then. We'll talk about the Wizards in a few minutes. But talk about the Redskins now and this new Scott McLuhan situation, which is really just more clarity kind of on the old Scott McLuhan situation. Uh, And it comes in the form of Michael Robinson talking on the radio in Richmond. Robinson's a Richmond native, does a lot of charity work down there. He was an NFL fullback for a long time, played uh, at Penn State. I believe he was a quarterback at Penn State. Uh, And then... Uh, played in Seattle under Scott McLuhan as a fullback, is still close friends with McLuhan, went on Richmond Radio, the Wes McElroy Show on Fox Sports Radio 910, and said this. Uh, He really, really felt that um, it was a pride thing. Uh, He he knew the players loved him, and he started feeling the hate from Bruce Allen um, uh, uh, right around, uh, well, he's been feeling it, but... When they didn't let him speak at the, uh, what, Senior Bowl or Combine or something like that, uh, he said to, to him that was his last straw, and he knew that he was on his way out. Um, he said he had a, it, it was uh, after a draft meeting, um, after the Combine, uh, Bruce called him up to his office and was just like, nobody likes you in this building. Nobody wants you here. And Scott was like, well, I guess that's, I guess I'm out of here. And doing the timeline, is this when the, you had the, the report by 106.7 The Fan where he left for three days? He, he, he left the building? Um, I'm assuming that. He didn't necessarily say that to me, but I'm assuming that. But could you imagine getting this team to two winning seasons, putting the type of players in that building? Uh, he also spoke about the time when uh, the cornerback walked off the field and he told him to meet him, and meet him in his office, and he was wondering why the hell did, did – Mr. Allen gets so pissed about that. I mean, I'm just talking to a player. It's all about relationships. He also talked to me about how he wanted to get Kirk Cousins signed because he knew if you the longer you wait, this guy's going to break the bank. And also, the longer you wait, he may not want to come back. He may not want to come back because you've already, you, you know what I mean. You've been negotiating for so long. He opened up to me. I had to go. I had to go on TV, uh, so I couldn't finish the conversation. But um, man, it, it was a guy who he said, Mike. I haven't. I, I, I don't have an issue right now drinking. Um, I haven't touched a drink in a while. But of course, they wouldn't let me say it because they silenced me. 
and it was deep. Um, and we'll talk more. Um, I can't go into everything we talked about, um, but it was a guy who didn't look like he was done with the National Football League. He looked like a guy who um, felt like he had something to prove. John Schneider said he reached out to him, and there were some questions about whether or not he'd come back to the Seahawks organization. He said that there was other opportunities. So, Yes, I mean, because the guy really has a eye for talent that not many people are born with, Wes. Did you talk or did you get any sense from Scott McLuhan that there could be any litigation, any legal act towards the Redskins? Um, <laughs> I'm not at liberty to say. That's not a no. So there's a lot there. One, I think that, to me, I've said this all along, all along. A lot of the reaction from both sides and how this ended has seemed like they are setting themselves up for the lawsuits. The Redskins are setting themselves up to win. They get sued. Scott McLuhan is setting up to sue them. Again, this is the first we've heard from McLuhan's camp. And the first thing we've heard, uh, I should say since the day he was fired, the morning he was fired, his um, his agent, I almost said his attorney, but it was his agent, was on Pro Football Talk Live with Mike Florio and said the same thing, that McLuhan has not been drinking. So you're now hearing this McLuhan side trying to establish that there was no drinking because, again, it's somehow, despite Bruce Allen never wanting to slander anybody, uh, it somehow made it into the Washington Post reporting that McLuhan was fired for cause for drinking. So that's one thing. It also sounds like McLuhan is not only setting up to sue um, but he's setting up to get himself back into the league because he doesn't think that he's done. That, to me, sounds like when you try to figure out the motives of everybody involved, seems like that is what the motive is for Scott McLuhan. More calls on this, 800-636-1067. Carlton's in D.C. Carlton, thanks for holding. You're on the fan. Yes, how you guys doing? Good. Good. Hey, listen. I just had a. I'm. I guess. Uh, say I'm Roger Goodell. I'm. I'm pretty embarrassed. I'm sure a lot of the owners, other owners, should be embarrassed about the whole situation. And, you know, players have representation. You know, the agents and everything. The general managers have in kind of way that where they get represented or, or can Goodell actually come down on Bruce Allen and somehow reprimand him. Or him um, uh, defamation of character or something like that. I mean, it would, co- it would come in the exact. Carlton, it would come in the exact way I was just talking about. It's a good question. Thanks for your call. Um, I mean, they do have their, their agents and such, and they they have attorneys, and, and in that way, they're like any employee who could be defamed or wrongfully terminated by an organization of any kind, not just a sports organization. Um, and so, to me, I, I think this is headed to some kind of legal battle over a wrongful termination suit um, if the Redskins don't pay Scott McLuhan some kind of money to go away. Now, that might be being worked on behind the scenes, and it might have already started been working on sometime around that conversation that Michael Robinson referenced where they wouldn't let him talk at the Senior Bowl and knew that Scott McLuhan knew he was on his way out, and and then it became so untenable after the combine that they were like, we're going to go ahead and fire you, but we're going to keep talking about a settlement. We don't know that those those, uh, conversations are happening, but it would surprise it not would not surprise me at all if they are. We don't know that at all. I'm not telling like that's not an educated guess. That's just like looking at what is going on and guessing. Um, but we'll see. 
because uh, eventually a lawsuit would become public. That's that's how those work. Bill's in Fredericksburg. Bill, you're on the fan. Thanks for thanks for calling. Hey man, thanks. Um, thanks for taking my call. Good show. Thank you. Listen, I've been in the Redskins fan since like all a bunch of kids. Like we followed the Green Bay Packers. And I was a junior high, lower junior high when they got Vince Lombardi for coach. And I started following them then. I've been a fan ever since. But this is this is about driven me to the break of not even wanting to, to say the name anymore, man. Because I, I don't get it. I don't get why these guys, they make more in one week than I'm making my household makes in a year. And we're surviving and getting along with people. And these prima donnas can't get along? I don't understand it, man. If, it, if these rumors or whatever are true, the Redskins, I hope, I hope the Redskins get sued for every penny they're worth. I know if they lose. I'm just sick of their attitude. And they're, to throw this guy under the bus like this, listen, even every company now, when you call in, this is why these companies now have rules where if someone calls to verify someone's employment, you're not allowed to give them any opinion about how their work was or anything. You just send to the personnel office and say, can you call HR and they'll verify employment. They don't give any opinion or anything. And the way the Redskins threw him under the bus... Unless it's a lie, unless he's lying and he's been drinking the whole time, then they they deserve everything that happens to him. And I'm just sick of the organization acting like it is. And if I was a general manager in the football league, there's no way I'd come here. If I was a good player on free agency, there's no way I'd come here. There is no way. I think he, they just sunk the franchise for the next five years. That's my opinion. Bill, thanks for the I'll call. I'll shut up. <laughs> Bill, thanks for the call. You, you don't have to shut up. You're, I appreciate your passion and I appreciate um, your your perspective as someone who's been a fan for a, a multiple times longer than I've been alive. Not to make Bill feel old. Maybe it's just twice. Well, as long as I've been alive. Um, multi- maybe, maybe just one multiple. The Lombardi was a long time ago, man. I'm not, not that young anymore. Um, anyway, free agents still are going to come if you pay them, but what you're going to wind up having to do is essentially play what what the Browns, uh, pay. They call it the, they call it the Browns tax in Cleveland. Hey, we'll sign somebody, but it's going to cost us more than it costs anybody else. You have to pay a Redskins tax. You're going to have to pay a dysfunction tax because nobody's going to sign up as a general manager. There's only 32 jobs. People are going to come, but if someone has options, they're not going to come. Um, and there probably will be someone, if they're super confident they can get a, a GM job later, might turn it down and say, I'll wait for the next one. So it's, in a way, how you wound up with Jay Gruden. And that one's turned out to be a pretty solid win. Jay Gruden's, I think, a really solid NFL coach. I mean, he's not great, but he's good. And, and as he continues to learn, he has the potential to become very good and maybe even potentially great. Um, he's just still on the learning curve and on the way up. Um, but... You can't. Part of the reason you re-sign Jay Gruden even is because who the hell's if if Gruden comes and does what he's done here and then you fire him, like who's gonna sign up for that? So this stuff does matter from a football operation standpoint. It matters on a human level um, too, which I would argue is more important. But either way, like it's not good, and powers powers intoxicating, and power is essentially what most of these ego-driven people like. You have to have some kind of ego to succeed in highly competitive situations. And the NFL is as highly competitive of a world as it gets. It's comp- you're, you're competing to create competition. You're competing as a front office to put a competitive team on the field so they can go compete and win football games. 
It's incredibly competitive. And so power and competition and that combination when in the wrong hands is is dangerous. And Bruce Allen's not exactly proving that that power in his hands is a good thing. Like, if power is intoxicating, then Bruce Allen is hammered. He's acting like it. At least per these reports. Monstrous Day tomorrow. Uh, Grant Paulson will be a part of it. GP, good morning, sir. How are you? I'm good, bud. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So I just went through, uh, in the last couple of segments, my top five national storylines. And I want to get to uh, some cap stuff, too, kind of explaining the importance of today for them. They have a massive game later. But start the Nats with you. Uh, My top five storylines went like this. What do we get from Bryce Harper this year? What do we get from Daniel Murphy this year in terms of relative to each of their individual last year's? Can Steven Strasburg get through the season? Will Trey Turner be an all-star, if not an MVP candidate, if he repeats what he did last year over the course of a full season? And then, obviously, the closer role. Is there one that I missed to you that is the mo- one of the mo- most intriguing storylines going into the season for the Nationals? Uh, I think that's a really good list. I would add a little bit to the Strasburg storyline there. And just, for me, a big concern with this team is the rotational depth in general. So I would say, do they have enough starting pitching to get through the year. What I mean by that is, let's say that they do have an issue with Strasburg's health, which is not only, you can't just call that negative or pessimistic. I mean, that is at this point, likely at some point, you'd have to say. Max Scherzer did not have his prototypical offseason. An injury kept him out of the World Baseball Classic. He started spring training late. We found out yesterday he won't pitch until the first road series in Philadelphia. I mean, in just terms of his own career, He's starting a little bit behind where he normally is. Typically, they have come into years, Craig, with seven or eight arms ready to go. This year, that number really is five major league proven guys without much behind those pitchers. So one of the storylines to me is past Strasburg, health of the rotation, and then if and when someone goes down, because it happens at every team in this sport every year, Joe Ross last year missed starts. Who's that next guy up? Who becomes your sixth arm? And one name to keep an eye on is Eric Fetty, who was one of their first-round picks a couple years ago. I had to have Tommy John surgery. They drafted him. He fell in the draft. Not unlike Lucas Giolito and Anthony Rendon below where he was supposed to, the Nats have kind of made a killing in the draft, taking guys with some injury concerns. And he is really seemingly primed for his final year starting in the minor league, the big leaguer next year. But if this is a midseason situation where they need someone for the last couple of months, could they tap into that resource? I think that's interesting. But I just think the depth in the rotation, not having you know, a stash of a plethora of guys that are big league proven like they normally do, ready to fill in, could end up hurting them a little bit. Turner, to me, is the most interesting one. I, I'm an admitted athlete snob, so I love the super athletic dudes, whether it's in baseball, basketball, football, whatever. Um, and if you basically just double his numbers from last year, you know, he played uh, in just over 70 games. And so if you double his numbers, you're looking at 26 homers. You're looking uh, at nearly 60 steals. Like, if is Trey Turner capable of that over 140, 150 games as opposed to just 73? And if so, are we talking about an MVP candidate? Yeah, I definitely think he's capable of that. And I'd actually bank on it at some point in his career. He'll win an MVP award, in my opinion. He's that type of player in an organization that's going to be perennially competitive. The question is, does it happen this year? I think it's awful bullish and probably, frankly, just too much to ask of the kid that in his second season, which oftentimes is a regressive year for guys because there are adjustments made to them. You hear about the sophomore slump, not only in sports, but it's big in baseball as well. 
But what I'd anticipate is I think he's going to have a strong season. He will not get necessarily those numbers. I think he probably hits closer to 20 home runs than 30. And he's not necessarily a home run hitter. He's got line drive power and he's a doubles, triples guy. So the slugging percentage is always going to be high. What I'm more intrigued by is can he cut down on some strikeouts? Can he make more contact? I don't care if he trades in some power for some line drive rockets off his bat in the infield. But he's got so much speed. Anything that's misplayed on the ground is a base hit. Now, anything that isn't fielded cleanly with the infield in, for the most part, is a base hit. I, I want to see him hit 315, 320 over a full season. I don't think it's realistic that he's going to be able to hit 330 again. Now, but if he can hit over 300, you know, a guy who at some point in his career could compete for a batting title, I think we're talking about one of the best players in this clubhouse. And for me this year, that would be good enough even if he doesn't win the MVP award. So I'll say that he doesn't quite extrapolate out last year's paces over a full season, but I do think he's going to be a star this season, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if he did make an all-star team. It, uh, just cleaning up the numbers for both of us here, 342 last year, 40 RBI, 33 steals, uh, hit as a 342, 13 homers, 8 triples for Turner last year in just 73 games. We'll see what he can do. This year, Grant Paulson's with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Of course, you can hear Grant every Monday through Friday here on Grant and Danny. Much, much uh, hot air has been used about the closer's position in the bullpen. Uh, we know it's going to be Blake <laughs> Trinan now. What about the rest of that bullpen? How confident are you in getting the ball to Trinan and then, and then perhaps more hot air, a word on Trinan? I feel good about the bullpen ahead of the ninth inning. I really do. I actually think it could be a relative strength for this team. Because by going with Blake Trinan as the closer, they didn't tinker with the guy who was immensely successful in the eighth inning last year in Sean Kelly. And if you look up some of his peripherals, you know, he pitched at a level that was elite among non-closing relievers with over 11 strikeouts per nine, you know, missing bats, and, and really putting hitters away in big spots with runners in scoring position, stranding inherited runners. So I think in the eighth inning, he's going to be just fine. A health aside, that's been the only question over the last few years of his career. He's been very successful. Uh, in the seventh inning where you've had Blake Trinan, I think you slot Coda Glover in, and he's got the upside of proving himself in the pen to the point where you could use him in the ninth as the year goes along. But the beautiful thing is if he doesn't take to that role like a fish to water, that's where Joe Blanton comes in. Blanton, who last year was a horse for Los Angeles. I mean, this is a guy in his career as a starter who really wasn't a strikeout generator. But he punched out a batter per inning last season, and pitching, as I mentioned, in a little bit less than half of their games for a contending team that made the league championship series, I think he's going to be a welcome addition to this pen. I actually like the power lefty, Eddie Romero. I think he's a guy that's going to help replace Felipe Rivero, who was traded last season. And there's now three left-handers in that pen as well. Uh, over the course of the season, they'll use all three. I don't know if they'll be in the pen at the same time for the whole year, but Oliver Perez is a little bit of a loogie specialist. And then I still think Sammy Solis could potentially be you know, a household name for years to come, pitching in the seventh inning and, and getting big strikeouts. So this, the bullpen is a strength. The big question is Trinan in the ninth. And then my quick assessment on that is I'm not sold. I love Trinan. I've always liked Trinan. He's a ground ball guy. He does not necessarily have the, the K rate and the swing and miss rate that I like out of the ninth inning, even with his great stuff, which is kind of alarming. But I think this, I, I believe that they're, closer at the end of the year as of this moment won't be trying it'll either be Coda Glover or someone who's not on the roster but I don't think this will be a disaster by any means Craig I think he'll be fine and they're going to at some point decide that they want to do a little bit better 
and he'll revert back to being a non-closing reliever who helps them a lot. I think he'll be in the organization pitching well at year's end and probably setting up for somebody else. That would be interesting to follow as the year goes. Um, last year at the deadline, Nats pass up a couple of deals um, that, that would have been blockbusters involving Lucas Giolito, and then they trade him away in the offseason, and everyone kind of goes, wait, we, we waited for, for Adam Eaton? Putting, putting aside <laughs> what they gave up for Eaton, what do you expect out of him as a player this year? Again, putting aside the fact that he was not the, didn't have the right. sex appeal in terms of the acquisition uh, that, that many expected in, in giving away Lucas Giolito. Yeah, I think it's perfect wording on the question because I think that's the issue people have with Eaton. So if you just take that out of the equation, this is a really talented baseball player. And he is exactly what this team needed. You know, last year at this time, I was saying the same thing about Daniel Murphy. Now, I didn't think he'd have the year that he would have by any means. Matter of fact, he had twice the year I thought he would have. But what I loved about Murphy is he was one of the hardest guys in the sport to strike out. He was a contact hitter being added to a lineup with too many punch outs and not enough contact. And the Nats were trying to extreme makeover team addition their offense to the point where they could actually get guys on base at a higher clip. Adam Eaton should be hitting at the top of the order. He's a spark plug and a catalyst and a table setter. My fear is that Dusty at the beginning of the year is going to hit him sixth or seventh a lot, which I don't think suits his skill set all that well. But if he is hitting in the top two spots in the order with Trey Turner, as he told me and Danny this past week, I think that could be lethal. Now, this is a guy who's going to get on base who is going to have a bunch of extra base hits with his speed, who can steal bases. He's not Trey Turner by any means, but he'll steal 20-plus. I mean, he can steal as many bags as anyone at the top of the Nats order other than Denard Spann over the last several seasons. And he's going to play terrific defense. Now, most of his value defensively came when he was in the corner in right with Chicago. It made him a six-war player last year and you know, a candidate to be one of the most valuable guys in that clubhouse. Moving him to center takes away some of that value. It diminishes a little bit of what he does. But he's still going to be a tick above average defender there. And with Bryce Harper and Wright and Jason Worth and left, they'll be just fine in that side of the ball track in baseball. So I think he's a really, really good player. He's never been an all-star, which worries people. Uh, he hadn't played on good teams. I mean, that could change in the next two seasons here. They did give up a lot, but they are, as of right now, looking a little bit better with that trade than they did the day it was made based on Giolito's spring. And we'll see if that continues. It's probably going to have more to do with Eaton and, and their team success this year and next than anything that those kid arms do during that time. PJ, I'm murdering the clock. Sorry. Grant's too good. I'm keeping it for another question or two. Uh, Grant Paulson's with me, Craig Hoffman, here Sunday morning on The Fan. Uh, so are we going to get to see you and your beautiful eyebrows on, on CSN today, or are you, you just have the off day? Because I know you got the, the event coming up with FP. Yeah, that's right. We have the event today over in Georgetown, so no threaded eyebrows on CSN. Okay. I'll, ask, I'll ask you about uh, the event. I'll ask you about the event in a second. Then, then we'll just get save all your hockey opinions for right here on the radio. Today's a massive day for the Capitals. Can you kind of explain to people uh, who may not be as locked in? I mean, the the and I'm sure you guys talked about it on your show. The way the NHL playoffs work is is it po- like is it possible basically to have a bigger regular season game than than the Capitals have today with Columbus? Probably not, really. I mean, first of all, the way that the NHL does its postseason seeding, as you know, is kind of laughable. People love it, and I get why they like it. It creates geographical and regional divisional rivalries, and you play the teams in your division more often. It'd be the equivalent of if the NFL got rid of records really mattering at the end of the year and just made it so that the Redskins always played the Cowboys and the Giants as quickly as they could in the NFC playoffs. But basically, here's what's at stake. The Capitals, as of the end of their last game, two nights ago, uh, were four points ahead of Columbus. 
some people say this game's worth four because you can win or, or lose a couple point opportunity, but they play Columbus today. If they beat the Blue Jackets, it's basically over. They've won the division in the Metro, and the President's Trophy could very well be there. If they lose to Columbus today, you open the door for Columbus, very much capable of still winning the division. And if the Caps do not finish first in the Metro, they will then very likely have to play the Pittsburgh Penguins in the first round of the playoffs. What that would mean is if you got past Pittsburgh and Achilles heel and a thorn in their side for years in the postseason, you would probably then have to have a slugfest of a series with Columbus, assuming they didn't get upset, in the second round. Two division rivals, two teams that are going to finish probably within six or seven points of the Caps in the standings, and the second and third best team behind the Capitals in the East and in the NHL all season long. So it's the difference of winning the division, getting a first-round game and series with someone, say, like Boston, or playing the two best teams in hockey in back-to-back rounds before the conference finals, which they've never gotten to anyway. They can really, really help themselves with a win today. It would be a violent leap forward in their quest to win the top seed, and it would be very difficult mathematically to not see them winning the top seed and earning that number one seed if they win today. So that's what's at stake. If they lose... There's a decent chance that they're not the top seed, and they've got those two series to start their postseason, which would make it kind of difficult to see them get into a Stanley Cup. When you look at how you feel about the Capitals going into the playoffs, I know the NHL playoffs are so ridiculously unpredictable because a goaltender gets hot and everything changes. But when you you think about how you felt about them going into the playoffs last year versus how you feel about them going into the playoffs this year, is there any difference, any any better feelings, any worse feelings? How, how do you compare the two years where they've been the best team in the NHL That's a good all year? Question. I mean, last year, like if you played audio from a year ago, I was saying this is the year. I've done that a bunch. I always felt like it was because the team has gotten better each season. I guess if you're just comparing it with hindsight, having become wisdom, knowing when they got eliminated. You know, last year they did not go into the playoffs playing at a very high level because they didn't have to. They ran away with the division in the conference. This year, as we're talking about this matchup today, they, they have a handful of games left in their season and haven't even wrapped up the Metro. They're fighting. They're scratching. They're clawing. They need all these games. You know, evidence by the fact that they've won six of their last seven now coming down the stretch. I mean, they had ripped off six in a row before uh, their last disappointing game out in Arizona. So I actually think this year they're having to earn things a little bit more than they have in the past. I actually think that's a very healthy, good thing. But in terms of personnel, Craig, they are on the brink. There is a chance that they could end up leading the sport in goals allowed this season. Not only have they not done that at any point during the Rock the Red era, I mean, they've never done that before. And that's a big deal when you normally look at cup champions, teams that get to the Stanley Cup final. Now, this is defensively. We've had Braden Holtby stand on his head. He was the Vesna winner last year. This is the best group that they have had kind of start to finish. They're stronger. They brought in Shattenkirk. They're six deep. Last year, you had Schmidt playing in the playoffs, a Chorney playing in the playoffs. You had Orlov up a couple pairings from where he is. Now, you got two of those three guys as scratches and another one who, who isn't nearly as vital because you've got Olsner and Carlson and Shattenkirk and Niskanen and Orpik. Three of those five guys weren't even on this team a couple years ago. They're just so much better on that end of the ice. I think it gives them a chance. And the last thing I'd say really quickly is this is not about Alex Ovechkin anymore. He needed a hat trick this past week to get ahead of TJ Oshie for the lead in goals. They have the best fourth line in hockey with Jay Beagle centering Daniel Winnick, a guy that he works really well with, and, and Tom Wilson. They, they have a third line that scores routinely and a better defensive third line centered by Lars Eller than they've had in years. 
the third line is, is what got them beat last year because they couldn't make any stops against Pittsburgh. So when I look at this team, they're deeper. Their scoring uh, is more versatile. Their defense is better than it was last year, even though they had a better record. And they're, they're having to win something down the stretch. All things that should bode well for them coming up in about two weeks. We can only hope. All right, tell, tell me quickly about the, uh, the event with FP today. I talked about it a little bit earlier. It's over in Georgetown. You and Danny and FP hanging out, talking baseball. Yeah, I'm wearing a dress shirt and slacks, so that's probably the best reason to come. But, uh, yeah, we're going to be in Georgetown. It's going to be sunny and nice. Maybe go get your brunch and then come by. One to three is the time. Uh, we're over at Nick's on the Water uh, where you can sit outside and eat and, and look at the water. It's beautiful. Uh, one to two, it's just a Q&A with listeners and fans, FP, myself, Danny. And then two to three, Danny and I have put together 20 trivia questions. Uh, you're going to play like you would bar trivia with your, your buddies and your teammates, and the winners are going to get prizes. It's all Nationals-based trivia. So it's just a really cool event to kick off the season, man. We're real excited about it. Yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Uh, you're wearing uh, a dress shirt and slacks. If we're lucky, Danny will be wearing pants at all. Uh, Grant, appreciate the time. <laughs> uh, as always, my friend, uh, always good to catch you after your show, uh, Minors and Majors, over on Sirius XM on a Sunday morning. Uh, appreciate you, and, uh, and hopefully I'll run into you at some point this week over here at the station. My pleasure, buddy. Keep up the good work. We'll Thank talk to you, later. sir. Thanks, sir. That's Grant Paulson, everybody. I've been interested in the UConn women's basketball team for a long, long time. As a fan of the game, um, they, they play the game at such an immaculate level. I mean, they're out there running NBA sets. It, it's spectacular what Gino Oriama does. Um, I obviously covered them when I was at Syracuse um, in, in the Big East, and so did our next guest, Justine Ward, who is a, a student reporter and, and worked actually with the women's team at Notre Dame, and now she covers them professionally uh, for SNY. Justine, good morning. How are you? Hey, Craig. I'm doing good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So I sent you an email uh, Friday night before the game and said, hey, assuming UConn wins, let's talk on, on Sunday morning, and, and then they didn't. So <laughs> is, this, is this all my fault? No, no, I don't think it's all your fault. All right, fault. get him off the hook. Um, it was crazy. No one expected it, though, but I to be honest with you, Craig, I was kind of on the fence heading into the game because Mississippi State has size and they also have that guard play. So that's what made me nervous going into it. But that game, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. First watching it from afar and then getting to cover it up close, is mm-hmm. what, like, what is the magic of Geno? Because I, I always... Like I laugh at people who think that what they did it was not impressive because it was women's battle. Like that's so it's so way right. it's sexist and dumb. But B to get college aged kids to do something 111 times in a row is remarkable. So mm-hmm. when you look at and and if you had a chance to spend time around these teams and, and talk to Gino, how does he get that consistency? I think it's just a level of work ethic. I mean, I've sat in on NBA practices and the way that the UConn women's team practice, it's unbelievable. I mean, and he demands perfection, expects perfection, um, and expects 100% all of the time. And he's also just incredibly smart. He knows how to motivate people, and there's no excuses in that program whatsoever. It helps, I guess, when you have the talent to to be able to make the substitutions and things that he does, but still... Um, it, it's just remarkable. Um, and then, so you did say you had a kind of a sense that there, there was a little bit of nerves maybe going into Friday. Um, was there ever a mm-hmm. feeling as the season went that the magic might run out or, or did it, once it got going, people go like, wow, maybe, maybe this is just going to keep going for another year. Oh, absolutely. I think they, I, I know Gino was just, when is it going to come? Even heading into the season, 
Um, no one would have thought that they would have beat Baylor, that they would have beat Notre Dame, that they would have beat South Carolina. And they just kept winning. This is my first year as a sideline reporter for the team. And everyone kind of braced me like, hey, this is a transition year. This is a great year for you to kind of walk in and start covering this program. And then they just did not lose. So I think it kind of took everybody by surprise. Justine Ward of SNY with me, Craig Hoffman, here on a Sunday morning on 106.7 The Fan. Um, as I mentioned, you, you covered uh, Skylar Diggins and those teams and were a part in, in a small way of those teams mm-hmm. at Notre Dame. Um, and obviously, Muffet McGraw is an exceptional head coach in her own right. When you compare the two programs, um, some of the best in their sports and then some of the other sports that you've covered as well. I know you covered Arkansas football. Um, you've covered a, a right. fair amount in, in your young career, uh, as I have in mine. Well, how, how does it compare um, with, with some of the other things that you've covered? Uh, as far as UConn goes, I think it's just, I mean, these are incredible, incredible athletes. That program is run, I mean, I would say similar to a professional team and just getting close to the team and seeing how hard they work. And I think Muffet McGraw demands the same level of excellence as does any Arkansas football team. I mean, it's crazy how well run these collegiate teams are at this point in this day and age. Um, you're obviously a reporter, not a historian, but you've been around a lot of people that have been trying to put this into context over the past couple of days. Sure. The loss itself, how, how do you mm-hmm. best, what, what's the best way you've heard this loss contextualized? I just think that we may never see something like this again. To be sitting there and about to head into that locker room when prior to this loss they had won 111 games. We never know if we're going to see something like that in sports again. Yeah. So just to be there and to witness all of that, even just to somebody watching it at home to see this team play, you know, we, we don't know when that's going to come again. And it's, it's truly remarkable. It is. And that we, then again, we said that like three years ago and, and when Maya and them were doing doing the streak the first right. time and then they lose to Stanford and then they won 111 in a row. So maybe we'll see it again in two years, too. But no, it, it's it is kind of jarring when you put it that way, because it is the chances that we see something like this uh, again are, are slim to none. Justine, appreciate a little bit of time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good Sunday, Craig. You, too. That's Justine Ward of SNY. Um, you know, I I think if you probably asked Gino in an honest moment, um, he probably would have rather had, I mean, not rather, he would have liked a regular season loss to get the streak over with and to see how this team is battle tested. It's something that you just, you don't deal with that often in sports. Um, and, and again, it's not that the women's game lacks parity. It, it, it's just that they're, they're so much better than everyone else who is, has risen above them, but they've risen at the same rate. And so, you know, you're you're going to see, like, Gonzaga playing the national championship game uh, tomorrow night. They have been mostly unchallenged. They have the widest margin of victory of, I think, anyone since, I want to say it's like 91 Duke or something like that. 92 Duke. Like, it's been decades since you had a team that has won, on average, by this much, uh, make it this far in the tournament. And... We've seen teams from other mid-majors that are undefeated going to the tournament. St. Joe's with Jameer Nelson and Delonte West a couple of years back have this on the men's side. Um, but when you never face adversity and all of a sudden you have some, like, how do you handle it? And when you live in fantasy land and you crush teams by 30 every night, um, it's just insane to try to think about 
Um, all right, what, what if you're Gino? Like, how do you how do you try to prepare your team for that situation? All right, hey, we're gonna we're gonna put ten seconds on the clock again, twenty seconds on the clock again, and and uh, go through this scenario in practice. And as Justine just told us, like they practice as intensely as as any NBA team. But what do you, what do you eventually like those situations in practice? Like, okay, cool, coach, we'll do it, but we're never going to get this in a game because they're college kids, and that's what made the streak so, so remarkable. Um, but when you look ahead to tomorrow night, uh, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, obviously, at this point in the tournament, both Gonzaga and North Carolina have faced their share of adversity. Gonzaga coming in with just one loss on the year. Carolina's lost, uh, obviously, a few more games going through a tougher non-conference uh, or a tougher conference schedule in the ACC but uh, has, has had to squeak one out last night against Oregon. I want to talk about those games, uh, the championship game, the ones that happened last night, uh, the Georgetown opening, and whatever else comes up with Jamie and Christian of Mount St. Mary's. He's 34 years old, and he's arguably the hottest candidate on the coaching market. So let's talk to him next on The Fan. I am very excited to have our next guest on. He's the head coach of Mount St. Mary's. Uh, his name is Jamie Christian. He's 34 years old, and he's a rock star in the college coaching ranks. Jamie, uh, good morning there out in Phoenix. How are you, man? Good morning. I'm doing great. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we were talking about, obviously, the, the games last night earlier in the show, and uh, PJ, my producer, is a high school coach. Uh, I'm a basketball junkie, and we both know that the only thing worse than missed free throws is missed free throw box outs. And I also know that typically at the Final Four, all the coaches sit together. So did you guys all there in Phoenix last night have a collective heart attack at once at the end of the Oregon-UNC game? Well, you know, I think it's it's something where you got to spend a little bit of time on it every single day. Um, you know, one thing I've learned about tournament play is that the little things equal big things and probably a little bit more because of the emotion of the game. And I think, you know, sitting there with coaches, we were all kind of – it's weird. I think we all sent text messages back home to our to our players, <laughs> <laughs> basically, because we were, we were all like, oh, you know, you have that collective grasp. I'm like, we lost this game on a free throw box out. You know, it's just like – it just kicks you right in the stomach. It's one of those things where I'm last night watching that game going, man, if I'm Jordan Bell, who has been an absolute star in this tournament, had 16 rebounds last night, but yeah. mix, misses the box out. And I look up at that Final Four banner when I'm back for reunions 10 years from now. Like, that's what I'm thinking about, probably. So as a coach, what are you trying to tell him in the immediate aftermath of the game uh, to try to make it so that he's not just beating himself up for the next ever yeah well you know the first thing is uh, a guy like jordan bell who plays his heart and soul you know it hurts him as a competitor more than anything you saw that with his post-game comments last night just being in tears and completely distraught um me as a head coach i mean i'm a big hugger and a big lover so you know i'm hugging that guy and just just make sure that everybody in that locker room really understands that we've got to be really supportive and you know i'm going to hug him and, and make sure he understands everything he's done for our program and everything you know he's done and how adversity is going to help him become stronger and better at this when he gets through the other side of it and then i'm making sure i'm making a pretty strong announcement to our team that in times of need we need to support each other and especially jordan that time and i'll make sure that everybody in that locker room and spend some time with them and every coach does over the next few days as well 
how do you then walk the fine line? Because it, while, while you need to make sure you hug him and, and all that kind of stuff, and I, I totally agree with that because there, there are so many moments within a game that can change a game. It's just at the end, it's the end. Um, but that's also an incredible teaching moment. So how do you how yeah. do you teach there without then throwing that guy under the bus who very clearly did, uh, albeit again not not the mistake that that changed the game, but made a mistake yeah. that did in the end uh, help change the game. Well, I think with with some moments that are so large that way, um, you know, uh, you know, next time practice starts, you'll be able to really talk about it. But everyone in your program is going to know, you know. So it's one of those teaching moments that's so obvious. You know, it's like it, it's like if you back it's like if you back the car into the uh, the drive back the car into the driveway and you hit the pillar on the side because you're on the phone. You know, and everybody's in the car. You're like, okay, I probably shouldn't be talking on the phone while I'm backing out of the driveway. It's like such an obvious thing right. that it makes it a lot easier for a teaching moment. And you know, it's hard in that moment immediately after the game, especially I would think with a guy like Jordan Bell who plays with such emotion, to really try to have that teachable moment right then. Right, I think oh, that teacher sure. right then might get lost in, in in the message of what's going on around you. But when you come in next year and you start free and you go free throw box out the first day of practice, everybody's going to be free throw boxing out like crazy because <laughs> they're yeah. going to know what happened. Yeah, it, it was really interesting to watch because for a team that that does play so intensely and plays with so much passion, the the laissez fairness they took to that. Um, was, was striking to me, um, almost if they expected the ball to go in. Obviously, there yeah. there in itself is the teaching moment. Jamie and Christian of uh, Mount St. Mary's is with us. All right, I've been trying to think of how to ask you this question all morning, so I'm just going to bluntly ask it. Has Georgetown reached out to you, and would you be interested? Uh, they have not reached reached out to me at all. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a great place, an elite-level job. You know, what Coach John Thompson's been able to do there, what, what Coach John Thompson, the father and the son, have been able to do there have been really, really special. I mean, when you look at the elder Thompson, you know, what you're looking at is a guy who made an immediate impact but created a program that has a lasting impression. You know, like, yeah, immediate impact with a lasting impression. That's really, really hard to do in sport and in life. And it's because he was such a bigger-than-life figure that was able to really transcend and change college basketball being one of the first prominent blackhead coaches we all grew up watching him and those big bear hugs he gave those guys and they came out of the floor um you know he really revolutionized college basketball and gave a guy like myself someone to emulate and try to try to try to become one day and i think that's really important and so it's an elite level job um it's in a great area i mean you saw that publication that came out earlier this week about most players in the country, come out of the D.C. Maryland area, and that's a true statement there. So it's elite level spot. They're going to hire a great head coach there, and uh, you know, and it's going to it's going to it's going to get rolling back to the level that everybody believes it can be. I appreciate you not going no comment there. I I, I do. Uh, <laughs> you're you're at your um, your alma mater right now, um, which has got to be a pretty cool thing for you. Obviously, um, at, at what point in your playing career at Mount St. Mary's did you know that you wanted to become a head coach, or was it even perhaps before that? You know, pretty immediately. I mean, my high school coach won over 600 games. And, you know, I really learned a lot with him and just having a relationship with him on how to impact the program. And he did it at a high school level. And I think that made Mount St. Mary's with Coach Jim Phelan there, who had 830 career wins. It just made Mount St. Mary's such an attractive place for me, uh, a chance to go and learn from someone who's done it, who's seen it so many different ways. And so, you know, I always say this, you know, I think, I think I was always just born to be a coach and I think I've always seen the game that way. When I was a senior, I played a lot. My first three years in college basketball at the Mount, when I was a senior, Milan Brown came in and I didn't play at all. Like I had the first three years, 
but he gave me a tremendous platform as a veteran to watch film, to teach and practice, to help the guys understand what he needed to do. And so he really got me off to a great start in terms of coaching. Even even when I was a player that year, he let me address the guys in timeouts. You know, I just think, you know, one thing you want to be able to do is you want to be able to take tough situations and make them as good as they can be. I thought Coach Brown and myself in that situation, you know, he really helped prepare me to, to start being a head coach. I think I got a year more experience than what people realize because, you know, that year that I learned so much just by being able to be around a staff who loves our players and who want us to get better. They just did a great job with me. Jamie and Christian of Mount St. Mary's with me, Craig Hoffman, here on The Fan. Uh, Jamie, and, uh, and most of my time uh, here on the radio is spent covering the Redskins, as a lot of us are. Um, but in the past couple of years, I got a chance to know Sean McVay pretty well. Obviously a very, very successful yeah. young coach on the football side of things. For him, though, he's, he's he was a young man coaching men um many of whom yeah. still as a head coach will have some guys that are going to be older than him uh for you your entire career has been spent in college but was there ever a time um even as an assistant younger probably now in, in your your early to mid 30s it, it's probably been easier but was there a time where that lack of age gap ever became difficult for you no i mean you know my, my people don't know this my mom and dad are both teachers so i grew up literally when i was five six seven eight years old always in the school system you know after school i'd go over to spend time with my mom or spend time with my dad and so i've always grown up around adults so i think that's always helped me to be able to just have those kind of conversations no matter how old the people how, how old the people were around me and just kind of having an understanding of, of life in a bigger sense in a bigger form so i don't think my age has really hurt me as much as people may think and in recruiting i've always tried to just put together such a good staff and usually with an older person on staff to kind of just make everybody feel comfortable but i think if you know i think if it's a big advantage if you come in and you sit down with us at the mound and i give you a full game plan for what's going to impact your 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 son and you see how detailed the game plan is i think it gives people confidence you know i think at the end of the day if you're young and you're good at something you got to give them confidence and if you have a great plan you have people around you that believe in you and you believe in them and you put your passion into everything you're going to do every day. I think at the end of the day, people start looking at that age as such a positive, and that's what we've been able to do here at the Mount. Yeah, you go from young and inexperienced to young and energetic, and it, it turns real quickly when you're successful. Um, I think for for most coaches that are successful that I ever talk to, they always talk about process over results, and I certainly know that I a lot of maturity came in my life when I figured out that that's how you should probably operate. Um, how, how do you go about teaching that process versus results uh, at a place like Mount St. Mary's where you really challenge your guys, for instance, this year with the schedule, you really challenge your guys um, and, and certainly it paid off with a nice result in the end. How, how have you used that in your program and in your life? Yeah, well, I think the process is really is about creating a way of life for yourself, a way of life, how we're going to do things. And, and so, you know, we talk about being enthusiastic about the little things. And I know that seems really simple. But, you know, if we can be really enthusiastic every day about the little things and little details that go into life, then when we get to the floor and we start talking about process, it becomes way easier, way easier. You know, a lot of times we talk about process, but we only talk about it in one form of life. You know, we're talking about it in your office space. You're talking about it on the floor. I just feel like it's such a bigger thing than that. Like, you've got to really create, you've got to really change somebody for the better. And you do that by trying to impact their 24 hours a day. And so, you know, we do we do a few things. I mean, you know, we do... You know, we have these really we have breakfast checks in the morning and stuff like that, like a lot of people do. But everything's set up in a way to make sure that people are being impacted by adults spending time with them every day. You know, we bring in meditation specialists. Our team will meditate every single day because I feel like the energy you bring into your space 
is so vitally important, and it's it's something that transforms to uh, that that translates to other people around you. So if we're able to bring the right energy into the space every single day, and you understand the responsibility of your energy, then you're going to have a chance to not only change your day, but to change someone else's day, and so on and so forth. So you know, we brought a meditation specialist in to help us gain some self awareness of how you're feeling, um, and so it's been it's been amazing to watch what that's been able to do with us. I mean, with our team, because. You know, you make a play, you make a bad play on one end of the floor, and then you come down, you make a bad play on the other end, and it's those two plays are not connected. The only thing that's connected those two plays are you. And so, if I can help our guys understand through process that they can that they can eliminate the next play by just resetting themselves, taking a couple deep breaths, and moving forward, then we're going to be pretty successful. Because you know, the first time you jumped on a bicycle and you fell off, you didn't get mad at yourself. Right, you expect it to fall off because the first time you're getting on there, you know your parent picked you up, put you back on, gave you some tools, and let you go on and try to get it done the right way. Well, every situation we're seeing in life is the first time we're seeing the situation, so we can't expect to get it right every single time. So we've got to be able to create a system where our recovery is perfect. Maybe the maybe the plan at the beginning isn't perfect, but the recovery can be perfect. And if we're able to build a system in place where we're changing your life to understand that we're going to be pretty successful. So that's what we've tried to do here. Just try to try to influence their life in a lot of ways. That's really good stuff, man. Uh, no, no surprise that, that your, your star is rising. Um, when you get back to DC, holler at me, love to sit down and talk with you a little bit more. Um, really enjoy this. Enjoy the rest of your time out in Phoenix. And, uh, and we'll talk again soon, Jamie. And I appreciate the time this morning. I love it guys. Thanks so much. That dude's going to be a head coach at a major program very, very, very soon. If Georgetown was smart, they'd lock him up. He's local. Uh, But, hey, since it's my podcast and not the show, uh, it's currently 12.56 on Sunday as I sit here recording this, and Georgetown still sucks, so they won't do it. Uh, From this Syracuse alum, I appreciate you listening very, very much. Train with the Best podcast not coming until Friday this week as Lorenzo is getting his off-season program started in Buffalo earlier in the week. So be sure to check that out. Subscribe on iTunes. And I believe we are going to be available very, very soon, if not already, on Google Play for the Train with the Best pod. So you can check that out as well. Radio-wise this week, I'll be on WQAM in Miami on Friday, then back on the fan here in D.C. on Sunday. So check that out. And next week's Best of Show. If you miss any of it, be sure to get the best of there. That's it. That's all. Have a great week. Goodbye.